Now, all of us have heard of the word or the phrase or the malady, tunnel vision. Here's a semi-official definition. Tunnel vision occurs when, you, when your peripheral or side vision deteriorates and is ultimately lost altogether. The result is that you may only be able to see things in a small circle directly in front of your eyes as if you're looking directly through a tunnel. Now, though I have no experience by God's grace with tunnel vision, that definition is exactly what I would expect. Now, what I didn't expect came next. As I read, the article goes on, it may sound like an obvious symptom, but many people don't realize they have tunnel vision, the loss of peripheral vision, because it happens over time. Further, a leading professional said, those who are afflicted with tunnel vision almost never realize they carry that impairment. People who have tunnel vision, whose sight is slowly diminishing, whose sight is slowly going from a wide, a wide range down to a small, tiny pinprick, people who have that kind of vision degradation don't realize that that's what they have. It seems beyond experience or beyond comprehension to, to slowly experience the constriction of sight and not even be aware of it. The article recommended that you get regular eye tests from eye care professionals. You need someone to know what you're doing to check your own vision. You can't trust yourself when it comes to measuring your own vision. Now, tunnel vision is not just a malady of the eyes, but it can be a malady of life, too. Millions of people are stricken with what we might call spiritual tunnel vision. They think they can discern spiritual matters, but they can't. They have spiritual tunnel vision. That is much more serious. People who suffer from this variety of tunnel vision almost never realize they're, they're impaired by it. Think of the danger. If you trust what you see, but can't see what you need to see, what can you do? Because you're in serious trouble. You need a vision test. And today we're going to get just that from the book of Mark. Today Jesus, as we follow him again, is going to give a vision test. He's going to help us understand where and if we struggle with tunnel vision. You see, if Jesus is not the focus, the dominant focus of your field of vision, you know that you have a case of tunnel vision and you might not even know it. So today, I want all of us to be able to pay attention and watch what's going to happen and evaluate this test and let our vision be examined by the great physician. And the way we're going to get that examination done is we're going to meet a delegation of men known as the Sadducees. These are Men afflicted with tunnel vision, they have no idea, but they come and they meet Jesus. We come and we're going to take our place in the crowd and watch this interaction. We join Jesus, you'll recall, in Jerusalem in the very last week of his life on earth. He's standing in the temple before a vast crowd and everyone in the crowd has their eyes fixed on him. Now the Sadducees, they're the ruling elite, they come up and they try to make him look like a fool. The Herodians and the Pharisees have already come and gone, and they were unceremoniously sent away. They tried to make Jesus look like a fool, and it was a failure. Now come 
the Sadducees. They're not asking for a vision test, but they're going to get one anyway. Mark chapter 12, verse 18 through 27. Follow along as I read from the English Standard Version. And the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you neither because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the, live, of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us to be attentive so that we can see what you want us to see. I pray that our field of vision spiritually would not be as diminished and constricted as these Sadducees. Lord, give us circumspection and help us each in this room to submit to this vision test and evaluate whether our sights are set on you and you alone. We pray for that, and we ask that your spirit be amongst us in power. I pray that as your word is preached, your spirit would be active amongst all of us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Two movements this morning in our text. One is the Sadducees and their question, and two is the Savior and his response. The Sadducees and their question the Savior and His response. First, the Sadducees and their question. We see that in verses 18 through 22. The Sadducees, that's a very strange name that nobody knows where it came from. It kind of sounds like a group of people perpetually sad and morose, but nothing could be further from the truth. These were the educated and wealthy of Jerusalem. These were the guys that had all the power and the influence. They were Instagram famous. They were hounded by the paparazzis. And they were featured on Jerusalem's lifestyles of the rich and famous. These were the guys who had money, they had power, they had prestige, they had reputation. These were the guys that everybody wanted to be or have as a friend. And so Mark, Mark just gives us the barest of introductions in verse 18. He says, And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. Now, there's a lot Mark could have said about who the Sadducees were, but the thing that he wants us to understand as they come, because none of Mark's readers and none of us are Sadducees, 
the original audience would have understood, but Mark wants us to understand that these Sadducees do not believe that there is a resurrection. They believe that when someone died, that was it. Their body would decay and turn to dust, and there would be no other life beyond the life we live here. And Mark points that out to us so that we can mark this as a signal that Jesus obviously knows this. Something else about the Sadducees we need to know is that they did not accept the whole Old Testament. They did not accept Genesis through Malachi. They only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, as God's word. So they only accepted Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And in those five books, they saw no evidence of resurrection. And so that's why they didn't believe in the resurrection. And they wanted to show Jesus a fraud by trying to trap him in a question that, is impo- that was impossible to answer. Now, last week the Pharisees and the Herodians, they season their assault with flattery, but the Sadducees don't. Because they're accustomed to looking down on others, I think that's part of why they get right to the point. Verse 19, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, The man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now that is a very strange teaching. It's a very strange teaching. It's like, what? Now this culturally, we have nothing in our our experiences that approximate what's going on here. But what, what these guys are referencing is a teaching in Deuteronomy chapter 25, where Moses taught and directed that It was called a Leverite marriage. If a husband died before he and his wife were able to conceive and have a child, it was the duty of that dead man's brother to produce an heir with the widow. Now, that is really strange, but why? Real quick, we'll explain a couple reasons why God put this in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Remember, in that day and age, there was no Social Security, there was no welfare, there was no Medicare, there was no social safety net. There was, so if, if a person had no, no children, there was no means of providing for their future. And so children were the, the, the way in which the society provided for their elderly. Secondly, by producing an heir, the dead brother's property would stay in the family and not be spread out onto whoever the next guy is that uh, she was going to marry. Now, the irony is, There was no evidence that the nation ever obeyed this teaching in all of its history. And so the Sadducees, what they're doing is they're taking a teaching they know nobody applies and trying to trap Jesus in an impossible answer, an impossible question. So, okay, remember, now here we go. Verse 20. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. The second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, verse 22, and the seven left no offspring. This sounds like a bad joke. Seven brothers walk into a bar and there's a woman. You know, that's, this is kind of how it's going. It's, you can see the ridiculousness here. Last of all, the woman died. So do you understand what's going on here? This, the, in their scenario, this made-up scenario that they're trying to trip Jesus up with, this woman marries a man. Before they have kids, he dies. She marries his brother. Then he dies before they have kids. She marries the next brother. He dies. Now, this happens seven times. To me, the logical question is, 
Why does she want all these people dead? How could this family be so stupid as to continue to marry this woman? It's clear she's killing all the brothers, but that's not the point of their question. They're asking, well, in heaven, after the resurrection, whose wife shall she be if she was seven brothers' wives? Now, they're thinking that life after the resurrection is exactly the same as life this in, in these days. They're trying to trap Jesus. Now, remember, they don't believe in the resurrection, and they're trying to show the resurrection to be stupid and Jesus to be a fool in front of the crowd. I'll give you a spoiler. It doesn't work well. They think they're exposing a blind spot for Jesus. Jesus is actually exposing them to have spiritual tunnel vision. And he's about to give his diagnosis in front of all those assembled. These were those, these Sadducees, who had tunnel vision and didn't even know it. So we've heard their question. Now we come to the Savior and his response. Look at verse 24. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Now that is right to the point. He doesn't put it, he doesn't couch it in any kind of cultural niceties. He says, here's the reason you're wrong. You don't know the scriptures, nor do you know the power of God. Here's the irony. These guys were the ones tasked to teach Israel about God from the scriptures, and God the Son tells them that they don't understand the scriptures, nor do they understand the power of God. That would be a bit like telling Warren Buffett, you have no idea about anything when it comes to finance and investment. That's what Jesus is doing here in front of this crowd. <coughs> or Tom Brady, you have no idea how to throw a ball. That's what Jesus is doing. His response is as scathing as it is unexpected. They assumed that the resurrection life, as we said moments ago, would continue life like this more or less unchanged from now. And Jesus says, false. Verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given to marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, I wish he would continue to explain how that worked, because I can't tell you. But he doesn't, Jesus doesn't spend time telling us what life after the resurrection looks like. But one thing's clear, it will be very different. So different that if he explained it, we wouldn't be able to understand it. There are new categories that will arise after the resurrection that we cannot currently grasp. If you'll notice in the Bible, whenever, whenever the scriptures speak about what life will be like after the resurrection, you hear things that will not be there. There will be no crying, there will be no pain, there will be no tears anymore. Now we can add another thing to the list. No marriage. Now as much as we would want a detailed description of how this works, Jesus moves on to correct them in their understanding of both the scriptures and the power of God, and show them to have the tunnel vision that they have. Verse 26, as for the dead being raised. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush? Remember, there's no chapter divisions and numbers in the Old Testament. So when Jesus says in the passage about the bush, what he's saying is Exodus chapter 3. We continue, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. 
Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, you might not know the story. For all of us, we're just going to review what happened way back in Exodus, which is the second book in the Old Testament. We have the story of Moses. Moses spent 40 years as, as a shepherd out in the backside of nowhere, um, tending to sheep after a very interesting first 40 years, which you can read for yourself. Moses is out tending sheep, and as he's tending to sheep, he sees, given that he's looking on the horizon to protect his animals, he sees a burning bush. Now, the bush is being burned, but yet not being consumed. And so Moses looks at it and says, huh, that's interesting. I'm going to go investigate that. And here's what we read in Exodus chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. When the Lord saw that he, being Moses, turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And he said, that's God, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. It was holy because God was there. And Moses is introduced to God from the fire of a burning bush. And he said, verse 6, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, And the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. That's the passage Jesus is referencing when he says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And so he goes on to show the Sadducees how very blind they were and how much tunnel vision they had. In verse 27, by saying, He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. You see what he did? He proved from a book that the Sadducees all accepted as God's word, the the proof of the resurrection after death. At the bush, God does not say that he was the God of Abraham when Abraham was alive, or that he was the God of Isaac when Isaac was alive, or that he was the God of Jacob when Jacob was alive. He says, I am the one who is their God. He uses the present tense. Even though Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the time of the burning bush had been dead for centuries, God speaks of them in the present tense. He says, I am, to Moses, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, it is true that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob we're still alive, or God would not refer to himself as the God of them, inferring that they were still alive. But also, this points to the power of God. You see, Jesus tells the, Pharise- or the Sadducees <coughs> that they neither understood the Scriptures, nor did they understand the power of God. So he's shown them the Scriptures they don't understand. He's shown them, here I am speaking in the present tense to of three men who are long since dead, uh, not walking the face of the earth, they're with me. But also, God, we see here in this section that God, that, that Jesus is highlighting the power of God. God made an agreement with Abraham, a covenant, which is an agreement essentially written in blood that 
all who follow that God would be the would God would be Abraham Abraham's people's God. He pledged himself to Abraham and his his people, and the pledge that God made is stronger than the bonds of death. God did not pledge only for a lifetime, but for eternity. When God makes an agreement with anyone, he settles a promise. When he vows to be their God and they his possession, he does not say till death do us part because death cannot separate him from his people. Rather, he says, I am with you now and forever. I am with you forever, not even allowing death to put a wedge between you and I. These Sadducees misunderstand the scriptures. The resurrection is taught in Exodus chapter 3, among many other places, and they misunderstand and limit the power of God. This God has the power to overcome the grave. And you, teachers of Israel, if you knew how to read the scriptures and knew how not to put limitations on God, you would know this. But because you neither know the scriptures nor understand the power of God, you misunderstand both the scriptures and the power of God entirely. You have tunnel vision. They could not, the Sadducees, believe they were wrong, and they could not see in another way. They had no ability to grasp the power of God nor the truth of the Scriptures. When someone is locked in on their own opinion so strongly that no power even... See, we have the Son of God talking to these people. Here is the Son of God. The voice that spoke forth from the burning bush is saying, you don't understand either the Scriptures or nor the power of God. And these Sadducees are willing to hold on so with such a grip on their opinions and perspectives that they refuse to listen. All of us have that kind of power to hold on to our opinions. To hold on and not let any intrusion of truth or anything to come and dissuade us from what we think. That's what happened with the Sadducees. They were so given to their opinions and perspectives and thoughts that they were unable to grasp or understand the teaching of Scripture, nor could they understand the power of God. It's ironic, isn't it, that they come to Jesus believing that the resurrection is a farce. They come to Him believing that that there was no such thing as a resurrection. Jesus would prove in just a few days that He was going that he would he would he would prove that he is stronger than the power of the grave. He is the resurrection and the life. Think of the 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 the, the, the limitation. Think of what these guys think. They think they know what is true, and they're speaking to the one who spoke from the burning bush. They they're speaking to the one whose voice Moses heard, and yet they refuse to see him for who he is, because they had tunnel vision. Jesus Christ, according to the promise of the Scriptures, died, and by the power of God rose from the dead. But the Sadducees, they could not see him for who he was. Listen, you do not understand the Scriptures, nor do you understand the power of God, if you do not put at the center of both the Scriptures and understand Jesus Jesus at the center of the Scriptures and Him as the ultimate expression of the power of God. 
It's so easy to miss Christ for the strength of our own opinions and perspectives. Or to read the Scriptures and not understand that they all point toward Jesus. Jesus is the better way. These Sadducees saw Jesus, but they didn't understand who he was. They had spiritual tunnel vision. They did not understand the scriptures, nor did they understand the power of God. Do you? Do you? If you do not see Christ, let's, let's look at our lives. Let's, let's, let's take another step on this vision test journey that we're taking here in Mark chapter 12. Is Jesus at the center of your vision? Is he at the center of your life? Or is something else? Are you putting Jesus at the center? Are you looking to him as the one who gives you your identity? Are you looking to him as the one who gives you your direction? Are you looking to him as the one who tells you, follow me? Or is your vision so narrow so as to push out all the other things, to, put, to push all kinds of other things in and push Jesus out? If your eyes are fixed on anything or anyone aside from Jesus Christ, you have tunnel vision. You might think you can see, but if Christ is not in your sights, you don't. And here's the scary thing about tunnel vision, as we heard earlier. Almost no one who has it realizes it. Here's the way you can know if you have it. Is Christ at the center of your life? What are some symptoms of tunnel vision? I'll mention two. You don't have eyes for Jesus. You don't have eyes for Jesus. You're not looking to Jesus. Maybe you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, but you're here, which is wonderful. Thank you for coming. But yet, as you examine your life, you're looking for success out of your life. You're looking for achievements or prestige. Maybe you're looking for just a steady job or fun or friends. And you're so focused on those things that you don't think you have time or need Jesus. And maybe you don't say these kinds of things, but you think these kinds of things like this. You think, I'll be okay when I get married, or I'll be okay when I graduate. I'll be okay when I'm able to retire. I'll be okay when I'm proven right. I'll be okay when I see my kids successful. I'll be okay when I'm sober for six months. I'll be okay when I see my kids have kids. I'll be okay when I have that job. I'll be okay when I lose that weight. All of those are things. When we put those things in the middle of our life, what we're doing is we're saying, I am choosing not to see what matters, but I'm choosing to see what I want to have as my functional Savior. All of humanity was made to live for something. And each of us have the grave danger of living for lesser things than Jesus. You know what? Your vision may be constricting. and You might not be able to see that what you're living for is things like that instead of Jesus Christ. Let's say, for example, let's, let's just take an example. Let's say, let's say that, we, that you, have a, you have a desire to give your kids everything you didn't have, which is good. You want to give them advantages. It's good. So you strain to get them into the right preschool, then the right elementary school, then the right junior high, then the right high school in the right college so that they can have the right job and get the right opportunities. You give them 
training in the right sports and have a personal trainer so they can live the right life. You give them all the, good, all the right kind of food and, and attention and training. Those are all good things. But if your life becomes, your focus of your life becomes my kids and their welfare and not Christ at the center, you will develop spiritual tunnel vision. Problem is, when you live for your kids or anything else, you're asking your kids to do something that only Jesus can do. You're asking your kids to give yourself meaning. Kids, as, as, a, as much of a blessing as they are, make rotten saviors. They're worth sacrificing for, but they're not giving all, worth giving our all for. Maybe it's not kids for you. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's money, a reputation. What do you have in the center of your life? Only Jesus is worth following. If you look now with, what am I looking at? What am I living for? What gets me up out of bed? If it's not Christ and what he's calling you to do, you need to ask yourself, am I really a follower of Jesus? Only Jesus is worth following. Only Jesus cannot disappoint. Only Jesus died to purchase those with tunnel vision who are so focused on what they want to give them both the cure of forgiveness and the promise of righteousness and hope. This is where we need to understand both the Scriptures and the power of God. We follow Jesus here through Mark to show, our, to show you that Jesus is worth following. Jesus is worth following. You know, some of you might don't have eyes for Jesus because you're looking somewhere else. Some of you don't have eyes for Jesus because you're blinded by religious tradition. Now, that might sound strange, but these Sadducees, they were very traditional and religious, and they were afflicted by tunnel vision. They said they followed God, but when God became man and lived among them, they could not see him for who he was. Jesus Christ came to save sinners, and sometimes the problem with religion is that it can inoculate us against the truth. You might think, because you went to church, got baptized, took communion, prayed, and read your Bible, that you're okay. And you might not be. Even worse, there are some of you here who grew up going to a church, and from time to time, when, when you look back and you know the truth of who God is, and you think all the choices and decisions you made, you think, I've got to clean myself up to come to Him. Even if you grew up in a good tradition, you might have the wrong idea about what it is to follow Jesus. You might think you need to, be, to obey or become more, to become more acceptable or improve yourself so that he can accept you. That's not true. Christ came into the world to save sinners. One of the primary ways that we understand the scriptures and the very power of God is by looking to see what Jesus did. Jesus came, not for the people who were good, not for the people who had it all together. Jesus came for those who were blind and dead in their trespasses and sins. Jesus came to them and said, I will take upon myself that punishment so that they might take upon themselves my life. That is where we see the power of God. And so if you've grown up in a religious tradition and you don't feel worthy do not try to improve yourself so that you can come to Him with something to offer. You have nothing to offer. None of us have anything to offer. We see Jesus, and we see Him saying, come, because He has come to us, and now we can go to Him 
freely without trying to improve ourselves. If you think you have to improve yourself, you have tunnel vision. And you know what? You can become so blind. You can become, you can have, your tunnel vision might take on this form where you fixate on how unworthy you are, how dirty, how much of a sinner. And you think, I am such a great sinner, this Savior could never save me. False. Take yourself out of the middle of your view and focus on Jesus. Put him at the center of your vision. Having Jesus at the center of your vision will show you when you see him, you see him coming, you see him living a perfect life, you see him dying as a substitute on our behalf so that we might not have to pay for sins. When you see him experiencing the wrath of God on the cross and we put, our, put himself at the center of our vision, we recognize we can do nothing to make ourselves acceptable before God. Jesus did that for us. So some of you have tunnel vision because you don't have eyes for Jesus. In part because you want the wrong things or maybe because you grew up in a religious tradition. But even we who are Christians, we can have tunnel vision as well. Our eyes can drift. We can become distracted. We can lose our focus on Christ. How can we do that? There's many ways. But Christians, one of the ways we have a brand of tunnel vision, is when we we focus on what we don't have instead of on who we have in Christ. One of the ways we have our tunnel vision is expressed is we focus on what we don't have instead of who we have in Christ. Maybe you are sick. Maybe you're lonely. Maybe you're in debt. Maybe you're misunderstood. Maybe you're just disappointed with how life went. And you didn't expect it to go like this. And those are the things you fixate on. I wish this was different. And you even maybe pray it was different. And you get out of bed thinking about healing. And you go to bed thinking about debt. And you wake up wishing things were different. Jesus invites us to take our eyes off of our troubles, off of our desires, off of those things, and put those things, however good they may be, to the side so that we can focus on Jesus. You see, if we put the focus in our life on anything aside from Jesus, we don't understand either the Scriptures nor do we understand the power of God. And in part, that's why we come together each week to look at the Scriptures and remember Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. Money's not worth it. Fame's not worth it. The best marriage in the world, not worth it. Good kids, not worth it. Jesus is only worth it. So if we focus on who we have in Christ, all the things that we don't have matter less. Now, does that mean we shouldn't pray that the Lord would help us and bless us? No. But should we live for that blessing and that help? No. If you do, you have tunnel vision. Thus ends our vision test. And it leaves, I can't possibly examine everyone. I do know myself, I can see places that I am blind. Not really realizing it until this week. What about you? 
What about you? Is Christ at the center? If not, what is? Do you follow Jesus? If not, who do you follow? If you're not a Christian, I would really encourage you to talk to someone who is and ask them what it's like to follow Jesus. If you are, and you're living for the blessings that come from God instead of the God who gives blessings, may we reorient ourselves. Christ is better than the gifts he gives. He forgives our every sin. He will hold us fast. He has conquered, so we will too. He will not treat us as our sins deserve. He is working all things together for our good. Any who are not fixed on Christ will not see well. How did you score on the vision test? Let's fix our gaze on Jesus. Let's pray. I pray, Lord, for all of us. We need your illumination through your spirit to speak to us so that we might be able to have moments of clarity and lucidity and see and know what things are blocking us in our lives. Lord, I pray specifically for people here who are not following you. There are people here who are not following you and they know it. Lord, I pray that you would impact their lives and help them to see the futility of life apart from you. There are people here who are not following you and they don't know it, Lord. They're maybe orienting their lives around blessings or things that they might get from you. And they're putting their faith maybe in in past experiences or what they know about God. Lord, I pray that you would capture their hearts. I pray for Christians here, those of us who are following you and we're fixated on the wrong things. We're fixating on what fixated on what we might get from you instead of being fixated on you. Lord, help us. Lord, thank you for the gift of conviction. I pray that we would put we would come to you again, ask for forgiveness, and know that you are you are eager and ready and and leaning in to forgive us of our every sin. May we be a people, both individually and corporately, who have our eyes fixed on Christ. May we look to you, Jesus. Only you will not disappoint. Only you will will see us through. Only you. Only you. It's worth building our lives on. In the name of Jesus, our great hope, we pray.